Brothers and sisters, welcome back to the XX Mormon podcast. I'm sure you're all delighted to hear to be here within the sound of my voice this beautiful Sabbath day. Uh, I am presiding today and conducting. I'm Elder Jackson. Uh, they've given me a promotion after after some uh, time away. I got emergency transferred for a little bit. Uh, really, really complicated stuff. Uh, my companion. Uh, he was he was doing just terrible terrible things um, like uh, drinking coffee. So I I had to I had to leave the area for a little bit. But I'm back for a hot second here uh, to bear my testimony, and uh, my my testimony is is firmly based on the knowledge that we're joined here today by a special guest. Uh, he is the one, the only, the brother-in-law of the husband of the sister of the wife of the brother of Jared, uh, and we'll call him Methuselah. Uh, Methuselah, welcome back, or welcome to the podcast. No, it's great. It's great to be here. I feel very, very welcomed and invited. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, The Sabbath day, we have some church music playing in the background because my landlords are Mormon and they're getting ready for for church. So I hope everybody enjoys that if you can hear it. Um, yeah. If you can tell me what I mean, song good, is playing bonus points. I mean, it's, it's good music. You know, most, most, most ward choirs um, are not made of, you know, super capable singers, but in this case, like I'm actually impressed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's truly, truly a beautiful Sabbath day. The Lord has blessed us. Um, yeah. So, Methuselah is here. He's going to tell us a little bit about his story. Um, and uh, with that, I guess we'll we'll get into it because we know we know your sisters. We've had your sisters yes. on the podcast. I know I kind of extended your your name a little bit there by relating you first to your brother-in-law and then relating you back to your other brother-in-law. But you are the brother of Heavenly Mother and... Uh, Mary Magdalene. So that must be why you've lived so long, Methuselah. Um, but uh, oh yeah, for sure. Why don't you tell us? Because we we've heard from their perspectives, um, their experience growing up in the church. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your experience? What was like? What was your memory of being raised in the church? Yeah, uh, you know, and it's really interesting because so I'm the oldest. Um, by, you know, by a couple of years from, you know, a heavenly mother, I'm sorry, by Mary Magdalene. And I'm like five years older than, uh, than heavenly mother. And I do want to fill in a little bit of holes yeah. <laughs> in the yeah, yeah, story. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Cause you know, as the oldest, you're just kind of privy to a little bit more awareness, you know, right, just, just right. a little bit. Um, and because both of our parents were, converts to the church right and kind of like came in with very different kind of upbringings and culture we kind of we kind of all had kind of this interesting confliction of cultures growing up right uh where we lived in california there are kind of like pockets of uh utah mormons in california in different places and we kind of grew up in one. We didn't right. realize it. Whereas, like, you know, my mother grew up in the Bay Area, 
And the culture that she grew up was like very progressive. I mean, even in, even in like the eighties when she was serving and working there, but for us, you know, our ward and our experience, when I talk to other people, they're like, Oh, it sounds like you kind of grew up in Utah a little bit, you know, Mm. with just how the, how the stake was, if that makes sense. Right. Um, And my dad, you know, when I was a kid, my father hadn't joined the church. Right. And so I grew up with coffee being made in the house. You know, I grew up with him smoking. Um, and so I have kind of some of those memories that my sisters don't. He, he joined when I was seven and then later, like, so he baptized me. But, uh, but my earliest memories are kind of, of something different. And my dad was also like a thinker. You know, he, he ended up, for a period in time, actually went to Princeton Seminary. I'm not sure if you're familiar with really? uh, Bart, Bert Ehrman. Or Bart Ehrman. I've I've heard the name. Who wrote mis- he wrote Misquoting Jesus and a few other stuff. So my dad actually went to the same seminary that he did. And so my dad is actually very well read when it comes to kind of the more secular early Christian history, you know. So growing up, we had kind of this, this father who, and w- later when my dad would serve in the church, had a very kind of like broad presbyterian ishy kind of take on religion right which which eventually maybe we'll get into it or not but like i think definitely got in the way of his service Mm. right my dad never was given certain callings because his vibe did not match the the general vibe that i think people wanted right yeah because we've we've talked about this on the podcast before where like you've got to be a company man to move up, you, right? You kind of you, you just got to toe the line. Well, and even even the certain cadence of talk and how you frame mm-hmm. certain ideas kind of has to align with leadership, um, especially the twelve. You know, and if and if you if you don't, if you kind of act like more of a conventional evangelical preacher, like that's not it's not necessarily something something that was wanted. Uh, right, right. Yeah, because that's. Um... Yeah, no, like, I think Mormonism have has its very own, as much as it is just, like, a Christian knockoff cult, you know, a fanfic, whatever. Um, it does have its own unique culture and ideas. I think you can, you, even though you hear a lot of the same things said by Catholics and Protestants and, you know, Muslims, you can still tell, like, oh, but you're Mormon. There is a specific vibe that is that has gone for and your dad didn't fit that vibe. Um, but even still, you know, he was still very involved mm. because he wanted to really support my mother as much as possible. Right. And so even from a young age, you know, like we read scriptures all the time. Um, I was very religiously minded, even very young. Um, I remember talking about, you know, Joseph Smith asking questions about God, you know, when I'm like five or six or whatever, you know, and being very kind of like, I definitely had that would develop that Nephi complex that sometimes people talk about where yeah. you, you need to, you need to, to, you need to be good, be as good as possible. Um, and yeah, I definitely remember a hundred percent in, on. Um, 
on the Mormon church. I didn't really get a ton of, a ton of influence from outside. And then later when my dad would join the church, I'm just like, ah, yes, you know, this is clearly, this is clearly it. But yeah, religion was really big Yeah, in our house. Yeah. So t- tell me a little bit about, I mean, your, your dad joining, do you remember discussions with the missionaries? Do you remember, like, did you hope for it? Did you, and then, and then when he finally um, did, like what impact did that have? Oh, I was, of course I was hoping for it. I I have vague memories of the, of the missionaries. Again, I was like six or seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember him quitting coffee. I remember him quitting smoking, which was a big big deal and to be fair that was a unilateral good it's probably For saved sure. my dad's life yeah. <laughs> quitting smoking uh and so you know that's that's fantastic but yeah no i do remember it and i do remember being elated that he was able to baptize me when i was eight yeah that was something i was really looking forward to and part of it's you know i also have so i have a i have a genetic disease i have a very rare deformity hmm. uh with my hands I don't know if oh, yeah, uh, like Elder over here has has visions of the yeah my fingernails are deformed. Oh, stuff. interesting. Hope hopefully that doesn't dox me. But no, <laughs> everybody's uh, like I know exactly who this is. <laughs> I know exactly who this is. But it did it did cause a lot of bullying when I was younger, yeah. um, especially at school, and some of that carried over to church as well. Right. So when I was young in primary. I definitely did not fit in with my class. Um, I was also born very late in the year, so there was kind of an age gap between me and everyone else. Right. And so I felt very, I felt very alone at church, especially as a as a child. And it was always really hard. My way of compensating is, well, I'll just study harder. I'll just be better and more focused in class and more attentive and respond to more questions and that kind of stuff. And so I think when my dad joined, that was kind of like, uh, like, yes, like another person that's on my side, you know? Right. Yeah. I get, I, I can fit in more now. I'm less of an outsider right. you know, now that my dad's a member, right? Right. Because there, there's somebody in my group on my side, you know, on my team. So that, that kind of, that does sound like a little bit of a Nephi complex, you know, like an us against the world kind of thing. And it's my responsibility to to lead the way um did you like tell me a little bit about that nephi complex because i kind of feel like we've all got one person in our family who is like who who takes it upon themselves to you know show the way and and do the right thing and and be the best example they could be and you having two younger sisters was that was that part of that? Like, did that feed into that kind of responsibility? Oh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So being a big brother was really key to my my personality and my outlook on life when I was younger. Oh, for sure. And if we want to skip ahead, when I was 12, uh, a few things happened. One was that like when I got the priesthood, my dad was serving in the bishopric. And so I remember looking up, you know, when back at this time, right? Like after sacrament went over, all of the men would meet as kind of like a general priesthood assembly and have announcements. And then they would separate to quorums. Right. I don't know if they still do this or not, but I remember sitting alone with my dad up there, you know, mm-hmm. sitting next to the Bishop and just feeling kind of like, 
I, I had a lot of respect. I was very proud of my dad for sitting up there. But at the same time, like, I just really wanted to sit next to my dad. <laughs> right. Because I felt so alone. I felt so alone at church. Um, but also, <clears throat> also, my, there was an incident in our family. We had a younger, I won't, I won't go into too much detail because this isn't entirely my story, but we had another health issue be discovered. Hmm. Um, with one of my sisters and I for sure felt a lot of responsibility to like really step up and like be that big brother to like protect and to help. And it was also like a huge blow and challenge to my faith Mm -hmm. because it was like life changing health issue. Right. Right. Which no one could do anything to prevent it like very much felt like an act of God to me when I was younger and reconciling as a 12 year old, uh, that life can just throw these curveballs at you that God could throw these curveballs at you, um, was really, was really hard. And so I remember a lot of that probably factoring into my outlook later as, as I, I think I stopped believing in an interventionistic God, hmm. I would say, like I kind of like addressed the problem of evil and kind of solved it as a 12 year old. Yeah. And the conclusion was that like, well, God just has to be hands off. Hmm. Um, and I think, and I think I linked that experience to my dad sitting up next to the Bishop during priesthood. Hmm that like my dad's over here and he loves me and he cares for me, but he's not sitting next to me right now. Hmm. And as much as he might like to help, he can't. Right. 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 And so that's, and that's pretty heavy yeah. as, a, as a, as a, as a 12 year old boy. But I think that's kind of how that, um, that experience kind of shaped my theological uh, underpinnings as I, you know, as I approached middle school and high school. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, the, the Mormon God is generally described as like a very personal one, you know, one that's going to be there, right? You have all these paintings. I remember I had uh, a painting of Jesus on my wall growing up and this was, this was my stepdad's favorite church artwork and it's Jesus reaching down into the water he's standing on top of the water and he's reaching down to pull up pull somebody up and uh and there was another one where he's hugging somebody right like in in mormon theology god is very personal like very personal you can talk to him he's right there he can tell you what school to go to you know uh where to find your i mean and he showed up yeah right like he showed up for joseph smith right? right right and 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 so for me too it kind of, I think, started a little bit of self-deprecation because it's like, well, if he can show up for Joseph Smith, but he won't show up or help me and my family, mm-hmm. then like, well, what's the, what's the difference there, you know? Yeah. And between the thing of like, well, either I'm, I, that, that was like a big, a big cognitive dissonance, I think, that I just carried with me for a long time because it's like, well, I don't. I might not be perfect, but like, man, my younger sister's so young, you know, like she's not even accountable, you know, like, right. 
I, you have to you have to like rationalize tragedy yeah. some way uh, you know and it was it's hard yeah i th i think i think everybody um in the church does it at some point they have to um recontextualize all of these things they have to say well okay he's personal but he he doesn't intervene you know he's he's there for us but he lets things happen that need to teach us a lesson right and it gets watered down until they reach the conclusion you did which was no he's hands off like he's he he doesn't he he cares he loves me but he's not there for me and and i think everybody waters waters that down or waters other doctrines down like i remember one thing i did was say you know what um second coming's never going to happen because you know, everybody's patriarchal blessing says they'll be there for it and they're ushering in, you know, latter days, blah, blah, blah. But I I started to think, I was like, but the second coming is when you die, right? Like the the actual second coming is metaphorical. Like the one that they talk about is metaphorical. Yeah. The actual one is when when I die, that's the second coming for me because I will see Jesus again, right? Like that's... That's my moment. So, and this, and we'll have to come back to this later when I'm actually deconstructing, mm -hmm. but that was a big point of me where it's like, well, what you're doing is you're starting with a conclusion. Yeah. And then if anything doesn't make sense, well, then we just have to reword it. Yeah. Or re redefine words until we meet that conclusion that we've been given. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. And so you're doing this, you're going on, you're, you're doing exactly that. And then um, how how did that look at school? Because you mentioned like there was a lot of Mormons in your area, um, but how, yeah. how did that kind of persecution complex kind of thing manifest for you at school, out in the world, the lone and dreary world? You know, you know interestingly enough, I had very few Mormon friends. Like I had one in middle school who was – like we didn't talk about church stuff at all. You know, it was all, it was all nerdy computer stuff and video games. Um, when I, and then in high school, cause again, I, and, and my friend wasn't in my ward at all. He like right. was way far out. Um, and then in high school, when I, I went to a charter school, so I had to commute pretty far for school. So the people I went to seminary with, um, and then to school with were not part of my ward mm. um, is when I finally had kind of some, some Mormon friends. Um, and I only had, I only had a couple, most of my friends were not members. And, you know, I started to feel kind of more just as comfortable, if not more comfortable with non-member friends than mm. the Mormon friends. And we had a lot of kind of like, internal conflicts between our family and other Mormon families hmm. because we, we were, we were a little bit weird. Sorry, my daughter just came in. No, that's okay. Um, so, so it's kind of, it's interesting. I, I didn't really experience the lone and dreary world. I really didn't feel like it was the world against me, so to speak. Um, until maybe proposition eight 
Really? Because I was in, because remember, I was in California. So I graduated, I don't want to dox myself, maybe, but I was uh, in California before my mission when Proposition 8 was in full swing. Right. And that was something that was really hard for our family. It was hard for me personally, um, just because of culturally where we were, we were not on the same page as the church mm. at large. And people forget how hard the church pushed members in California to vote and not just vote, but to hold signs, to go to rallies, mm -hmm. to go kind of like generate interest in that direction. Yep. For those who don't know, Proposition 8, um, this was a time when gay marriage was the hot debated topic. And in California, it looked like gay marriage was going to be legalized. And so the church funded a big effort in California to read, to amend the state constitution of California, defining marriage as solely between a man and a woman. Mm -hmm. uh, and they spent a lot of money and there was a lot of like political talk and stuff at the time. And it was, that was a real hard mm -hmm. struggle. Yeah. Uh, and I remember my mom, because see, see, I was so much older. I was, you know, I was almost near the end, nearing the end of high school here. And so I remember my mom in a car one time looked at me point blank and she said, you know, I just don't understand what's wrong about two consenting adults doing whatever they want in the privacy of their own home. Hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and that was kind of like shocking coming from, coming from my mom, because up until this point, you know, uh, you trust an authority and you really believe whatever comes down from leadership. And so having your own thoughts and your own opinions that, that might contradict leadership was kind of a new concept for me. Um, and we would talk about it a lot. Our family culture was such that we were allowed to criticize leadership. Right. We were, we were allowed to think our own thoughts and to separate that from, from leadership, but it really didn't happen a ton, right? It was mostly kind of like, well, you can have your own opinion and these opinions here, and you can kind of work it out and kind of like compromise within yourself was kind of the general idea. But this was the first time it was like, ah, you know, there's also, there's also some people in our ward that had made certain comments that were very, very homophobic mm -hmm. uh, that I think almost almost caused my dad to just straight up not coming. And that's a foreshadowing for the future. But yeah, uh, just really just like really insensitive, really like terrifyingly violent rhetoric. Right. And and my dad just sat us down and was just like, look, like this is not okay. like we don't talk about things like this. Like these are people, you know. Yeah. And I, that was a real, that was just really hard. It caused a lot of tension for us. Yeah. Did you, I mean, I mean, hearing your parents talk about that, I mean, looking back is probably great to think, wow, I had such progressive parents. But for you hearing that as somebody who was working towards going on a mission and saw themselves in mm. this, you know, bit of a Nephi role, like I'm trying to do the right things. Did you take offense a little bit to your parents? Like, how did you react to that? I rationalized it all. 
mm-hmm. you know so i had a lot of i had a lot of internal rationalizations i'm i get pretty creative when i have a conclusion that i'm supposed to reach so i was able to kind of hold both opinions in my head at the same time right i think it caused a lot of internal dissonance but i was also struggling with with other things um the concept of a thought crime i wouldn't have been able to articulate but i was definitely struggling with the idea that like I had certain thoughts that I felt were sinful. Mm. These aren't, these aren't terrifyingly violent thoughts by the way, but just, just the idea that like, I really need to watch the kinds of things I'm thinking Mm. because they can lead me down a dark and dangerous path, like that kind of thing. Right. Um, And so I think my, my internal focus was kind of like in terms of mission preparation, right. It was more towards that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was an interesting atmosphere for sure. People don't, people forget how, like how heated and intense that was in California. Yeah. Well, Um, even, even up here in Canada, I remember my mom mentioning stuff to us about, you know, we don't support that, you know, blah, blah, blah. Don't be gay. Well, and and again, I had never felt really persecuted up until that time. And mm-hmm. I didn't really feel persecuted then. I felt like we were persecuting. Yeah. It's kind of how I felt. Like, yeah. I felt like, like you know, just kind of looking around like, are we the baddies? You know, kind, yeah. of a, kind of a feel towards it. It felt very uncomfortable. And so when people would challenge me, because I had friends that were, because like I had friends that were gay. Yeah. You know, in high school. And so when I had other people kind of challenge me, I'm just like, you know, I don't know how I feel about this. <laughs> it was honestly how I would answer um, because it was really hard. I felt like I was put in a position where I did not, wouldn't have gone naturally. Right. Right. Um, um, and then uh, I won't get ahead of myself, but yeah, and that, that was kind of my lead up to, to the mission. Right. Okay. So, so let's, let's get into your mission. Um, Cause you're coming from a more progressive family, a more open family. Yeah. And, and it, sounds like you're developing that way as well and so then why i guess start with why you went on a mission and then we'll go from there yeah so my mom served a mission um and she was a convert in high school and her mission experience was kind of it was super interesting so it was in the 80s during the time that you know the vietnam war had just ended vietnam had invaded and taken over cambodia And so that part of the world was flooded with refugees, right? Fleeing from Vietnam, from the North Vietnamese, or fleeing from Cambodia, from, you know, the reign of Pol Pot, and then later the Vietnamese invasion, right? That was, it was crazy nuts, right? So so Thailand was flooded with refugees. So my mom was originally called to Taiwan, but then in the middle of her mission, was able to secure a transfer to work in a refugee camp in Thailand, strictly service. Hmm. So she was teaching, she wasn't proselytizing. She was just teaching English and sanitation and preparing people to be sponsored in America or other countries. Right. So when I talked to my mom about her mission, I'm like, wow, this is fantastic. Like, yeah. this is amazing. Right. Cause half of her mission was just, you know, working with refugees and yeah. she didn't talk about the first half of her mission, which was proselytizing. But, but so I was kind of excited to go on a grand adventure, honestly. Yeah. 
uh, I was really hoping I'd go foreign. Uh, I really wanted to to go out and kind of see the world. Uh, I did still believe in the church. I believed it was the best way. I didn't realize this at the time, but I had kind of adopted kind of a stoic philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, which makes sense, right? That's like where a lot of the Christian apologetics drew their inspiration from, uh, which to summarize, just this idea that there is some, uh, I forget what they call it, like a natural law mm-hmm. that exists. And the more you align yourself with this natural law, the more happier and fulfilled your life will be, mm-hmm. is you know, probably a too dumbed down version of stoicism, but yeah. And then the goal is to find out what this natural law is. And so I felt like, ah, that's what the church is. The church is the optimal way of living in order to like succeed the best. And so the idea that I could go to a place and share that with people Mm -hmm. who weren't familiar with it was, was exciting to me. Um, It was also the same time that preach my gospel just came out. So they moved away from the discussions by the time that I had served. And so all of the lessons were, you know, uh, made up by you, mm-hmm. which I was also really excited because I wasn't super keen on like just repeating stuff. But with Preach My Gospel coming out, this is a little bit after they quote unquote raised the bar, right? Um, I was I was pretty jazzed to serve. And I didn't leave super early either. I was a little bit rebellious. I wanted to go to college yeah. for for a year first. Yeah. So I left when I was 20. Uh, yeah. And then I ended up getting a call to call to Japan. So, Oh, cool. That was extra I, exciting. I, yeah, I, I was really to... expecting this, this to end with, and then I got called to Boise, then, Idaho, you know, something, something Boise, like Idaho. I know. Yeah. Well, no, when I read my mission call, my buddy who got called somewhere else was like, well, I guess I didn't pray hard enough, <laughs> but <laughs> Well, that's pretty yeah. Sweet. I mean, and that was, it was really sweet. And like at the time, I was just like, well, I can't, I can't say no to this now. You yeah. Know? Like, uh, I am gonna go on a grand adventure, you know. Um, and, and it was, but going to the MTC as a as someone who I would say like was a progressive Mormon even before going on a mission, right? To go to the MTC, that was a pretty jarring experience. Really. Because uh, that was my first experience, really, with like Utah, like being surrounded by Utah Mormons, you know, right. real pioneer stock, right? I got a taste of it at church on Sunday because so that community there, but I'm still living in California. Right, right. Now I'm in the MTC, you know, and the MTC is intense, too, too intense. I, I might, I might say like unethically intense now that I'm where I'm at now, but like, you're you really are uh, from the moment you get up until the moment you go to bed it is all church stuff mm-hmm. it is all language stuff you have no real time to to think for yourself at all and that was the first time i was kind of exposed to certain ideas that i was that kind of terrified me i had mm-hmm. my we had a discussion about theology because that's all you talk about and my companion i still remember this to this day we had a conversation about how the gospel brings happiness and true happiness. Mm-hmm. And my and my companion made a comment that, tr- you know, without the gospel, you can't be happy. Yeah, you can't be truly happy. And and I just like like that concept like shook me like a dog or something. And I just looked at him. I'm like, are you saying, Elder, 
that for the entire amount of the apostasy, which is like 2000 years, not a single person was ever happy. And he's like, yeah. 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 And I'm just like, I'm like, look, I'm sorry. Like, I, I cannot get on board with that. Like, that just seems like absolutely unfair, first of all. And part of part of what started to happen as I as I was in the MTC and was like kind of being bombarded with ideas, I'm just like, you know, God has to be all loving, all knowing, and all just. Like he has to be. And anything that doesn't point to this has to be wrong at some point. Yeah. And so this is kind of about the time that I started dismissing gospel ideas, things that people taught that just didn't fit this. Right. Yeah. And I was like, this, this doesn't, this doesn't, this doesn't point to a loving God. So it has to be wrong. Yeah. You know, um, but yeah, no, I remember, I don't, I do. And I don't remember the MTC. It's kind of like a fever dream. If you look back at it, you know, it's, it was a very intense and because I was learning a difficult language, I was there for three months. Oh yeah. Four, four months. I forget how it was. It was a but long you were, time. You were whisked away into this kind of, it, it's, yeah. I, I, I never went on a, on a mission. That's why I'm serving one now. But, um, it's like kind of seems like another realm. Like it's a different world. Oh yeah, for sure. No, it's, you speak a different language. Um, even if, even if you go English speaking, you, you kind of like learn mission speak. Mm -hmm. Your, your schedule is, is very regimented and yeah, no, you start to, you start to kind of like box in your, your world. And part of that's being set apart and being given a new name. You're right. only referred to as elder, you know, and yeah, no, it definitely, it changes how you think and how you perceive yourself, how you perceive everything else. Right, right. It is interesting, yeah. the um, the new name thing that you bring up there, the, because, yeah, I mean, you get a new name in the temple, but then you go and now you're getting a new name that everybody's going to refer to you as, Every, yeah. everybody, and the only other name that you're using is your family name and so there's not there's there's this first you're part of the church and second you're part of your family and there's nothing else yeah. there's no individual special name right yeah no it it is and that's a that's a deliberate choice yeah um a lot of a lot of more nefarious groups than mormonism uh, use similar concepts to really reframe your identity. Yeah. In Mormonism, we only do it for a two-year period, but but there 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 are things that you know Elder Methuselah would say and do that I I would never have thought of doing before or even after. Right. Right. Uh, but yeah, there it was. Yeah, I remember the I remember the MTC experience just being so. Overwhelmed. I gained, I gained twenty pounds in the really? in the MTC. Yeah, yeah. Like, and a lot of that was muscle, just because at the gym time I was just like running and like pumping iron. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about, um, tell me about your temple experience, Elder, or uh, oh. Brother Methuselah. Did that, um, like, how how did 
that impact your your testimony? Was that, was that something you had to deal with? So, so I remember making fun of the temple prep class. Yeah, um, because this was the temple prep class that I got. I don't know. I don't know if you. I did. Did you go through a temple prep I, class on I, the temple experience? I, I did. Yeah. So this was my temple prep class. Symbols are important, Elder. We use symbols all the time. Stop signs a symbol. Symbols. Symbols. Symbols are symbols. And symbols do symbols. Symbols are important. And that was it. Like That, that was like the extent of my temple prep class. Yeah. Um, for, for me, you know, I was a very philosophically minded, uh, one might say pretentious uh, young adult. Yeah. So, you know, I was reading Lacan. Um, I had read Derrida. I, you know, had read, uh, oh, what's his name? The, the myths, uh, the myths guy. Oh, Joseph Campbell. Campbell. Yeah. And so I was kind of, when I went through the experience, I kind of came in through it with that lens mm -hmm. where it's like, oh, okay. These are, these are mythologies that are being handed down in certain things, you know, like, okay. I, I was kind of like in a space where I could kind of jive with some of that, mm -hmm. um, I, yeah, so I wasn't as like negatively jarred by some of it. I was actually, there were, there was a bunch of things that don't make sense. Mm -hmm. And I actually wasn't jarred until I learned later of the things that had been removed mm -hmm. that make certain things that don't make sense, make Makes sense. crystal clear sense. Yeah. Yep. That was way more jarring for me. So several years later when I had done that study, um, and then also it's been kind of jarring in the past few months actually i've studied up on hypnosis how hypnosis works mm -hmm. and there's several uh hypnotic techniques that are employed in the temple yeah that make when i when i think back on it now are make me feel very uncomfortable yeah um but layout at the time i'm just like okay yeah no it's weird we can be weird and symbolic and you know and have you know, <laughs> go through the motions and do things, you know, that, that wasn't super, that wasn't super jarring for me. I feel like I'm more traumatized about it now, ironically enough. Yeah. Well, I, I think cause at, at the time in the moment, you kind of dissociate a little bit. You're not sure what's going on. You accept it as truth. Cause no. that's what you were told to do. And then, and, and you you don't fully understand, you know, that like the hand signs are, is like a huge thing. Yeah. Right. Um, well, there's yeah. there's a lot of that. A lot of that too is you know you've been told since you were very very little that this is the most spiritual experience you'll ever have. Like this is the most profound experience you can ever experience in this life. Yeah. And so when you when you go in with that, you know, as your as your like rock, what's grounding you, right? Then like yeah, you can you can take a very abstract uh, experience and and make it whatever you want, you know. So I think that's what I did. Mm -hmm. um, there were times in the MTC we would go very frequently, like early in the morning. We'd wake up at like my group was extra zealous, so we'd wake up at like five and go in the like, early morning session in Provo and really immerse ourselves in it. And I have a really good memory, so I have like a pretty good memory of um, 
of the uh, of the endowment session because of that, weirdly enough. But yeah, it's, it's always weird to see like other missionaries just like dozing off, like really having a hard time, hard time staying awake through it. But yeah, I didn't have, you know, I also come from a culture too that uh, like my dad has always kind of spoken in kind of a symbolic language every so often. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. It, it's kind of hard to, it's kind of hard to describe, but like, you know, you talk to cars right. as if they're real and like, you know, you introduce a lot of abstractions into, into reality, kind of fantastic, realistic way of seeing the world. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of that kind of acted to prepare me at least so that I wasn't super jarred by it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think if, if someone had never had that before, you know, it would have been, you know. Right. Yeah, I do. I do think um, for me, my temple experience wasn't super jarring because I had grown up in the church around so many members and I was really good uh, basically at eavesdropping, you know, and, and picking up little, little things here and there. And so, you know, um, before I'd even gone through and then when, when one of my siblings went through, uh, and then she, she found out that, uh, oh, they used to do this naked <laughs> and, and she was like, what? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, they did. You know, yeah. cause I, I'd heard that somewhere. I'd picked that up somewhere. And so, yeah, my experience was less jarring because of that. Yeah, no, and there's like the, was it like the five points of fellowship stuff? Mm-hmm. You know, was was a lot, was a lot different. And like, again, now that I've kind of understand hypnosis a little bit better, uh, Joseph Smith's time would have called it mesmerism. But, uh, but yeah, like a lot of those, questions have kind of more concrete answers to me now than Mm -hmm. I, when I reflect on the process, but at the time, you know, I was just kind of like, I just felt privileged to be there. Yeah. I did. I, I did remember feeling like, Oh, this is a tremendous amount of pressure. And like, you know, they ask you at a certain point, if you want to back out. And I remember thinking at the time, I'm like, like no one's going to back out now. (laughs) You know, you're surrounded by family. It's in the middle of this thing. No. Um, I understand that they've changed that now, which is probably better, honestly. I mean, they they still uh, ask at the same point that they, they still, used to, but they do. Oh, I thought I thought they bumped it earlier. No, they still ask at the same point, but they tell you what covenants you'll be making. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, you gotta you gotta do that at the beginning, you yeah. know, uh, yeah. with no pressure, honestly. Yeah. But I yeah. mean, at least at least they tell you what covenants are gonna make it. Yeah, well, I mean, what they should uh, do yeah, is I, I, tell you at church what covenants are made, so that you don't get you to the temple, to... find out, and then but, and then want to back out. Yeah, I, I, I do. I just remember being like, if that was kind of jarring, it's just like I don't really know if this is a very good check for consent here. You know, that was just because I'm like, who would back out? You know? Yeah, yeah. No, but, you're right. Um, but let's let's look at your mission. Um, you, yeah. so you, you went to Japan. Was it this grand adventure? Yeah, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Yeah. You know, I think most missions are like that. Uh, and so <clears throat> before my mission, uh, there was a, th- a thing in Japan that happened 
Um, I used to think it was way earlier. It wasn't super early. It was around in the 90s called the Tokyo Express. Hmm. And what this was is there was a certain Cavalier mission president that was doing his doctrinal thesis. I'd done all this research after I came back, by the way. But he was doing his doctrinal paper as a mission president in essentially high pressure sales tactics. Hmm. And so he would use a bunch of really high pressure, frankly, manipulative ways to increase the number of baptisms. Hmm. And Japan uh, started out at the Tokyo mission, which is why it was called the Tokyo Express. But it soon spread to all different regions in Japan. Japan was baptizing something like 3,000 members a year. Wow. It was bonkers, like bonkers numbers, because people would do things like you meet someone on the street, you start giving them the lesson as you're talking to them, you get them to move to the church, do this, and you baptize them like that day or like that Sunday. Um, start a sports club and have baptism be an initiation to join the club. And he made a video. So it's called the Tokyo Express because he made a video with his uh, APs about how to do this. And it was called the Tokyo Express that you would watch. It's like the, the, the trains to the station of salvation or whatever right, they framed right. it as. And it was, it was bad. Uh, it was really bad for a bunch of reasons. Right. But it looked very good on paper. Um, Elder Kukuchi, who was an area 70 at the time was also like a hundred percent behind this idea. Um, they felt they felt, and I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. They probably felt this earnestly that the ends justified the means. Yeah. That sure. A lot of people might fall away, but even if we can just keep a handful, it'll be worth it because they'll be, they'll attain salvation or whatever. Right. But what ended up happening and this went, and this, this mindset, I think it might've even started in Japan. You see other people with like, different like basketball baptisms down in mm. South America, for example, and stories like that. I think it started in Japan weirdly, but what happened is it got so bad that a very famous national comedian in Japan started making fun of the lines that the missionaries would say, right? Because it kind of, the cat kind of got out of the bag that these were American Christian missionaries leading with really kind of like drawing in sales tactic-y questions, you know, like, like he would, he had a bit about it that kind of got popular. Um, and so it like super backfired uh, for PR. Mm -hmm. And so after this mission president went home um, and, and the other thing too, that happened is these missionaries that served in Japan, but especially Tokyo, they would come home and they would ghost the church they would just disappear really because the mission president would also be extremely manipulative and pressury to all of the missionaries too because right. missionaries missionaries like balked at his like ambitious plan they're just like i don't like that i don't feel comfortable at all and he'd be like look like you will never amount to anything in your life if you say no to me that kind of stuff right yeah so it was, it was, it was just like an absolute mess, a hundred percent. If you want to research it yourself, Tokyo Express, you can find a bunch of stuff. Um, there was a, the whole community, a lot of these ex-missionaries found each other on a certain message board. And that's where I read a lot of stuff from. Um, but yeah, tons of, tons of missionaries would just leave after coming back from Japan. 
and one of them was the grandson of a member of the 12. I forget which one, hmm. but who just sat down and just said, look, like, this is really bad. Like, we got to stop this. Like, this is, this is really bad. And so eventually it did curtail. He was never formally disciplined, but like, you know, he never had any influential callings ever again, right. kind of a thing. And the mission president who replaced him was the exact opposite, if that makes sense. Okay. So from that point forward, <clears throat> if you're a mission president in Japan, I think that you have to be pretty good, <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like a pretty, a pretty decent guy. Because my mission presidents were were pretty stand-up people, I thought, I felt. Um, quirky in their own ways, you know? But, like, I've talked to other return missionaries from other missions, and their mission presidents were not nearly as compassionate or uh, accommodating as mine were, both of them. Right. Um, and... <clears throat> I won't dox myself by saying that I served in Tokyo because Tokyo has been several different missions over the years. Yeah. But uh, when you would get the area books, you have an area book, right, of everyone who's ever been contacted and all this kind of stuff and a bunch of members lists, you would go through the area book and it would be like T-E, 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 listed next to all these names, which is like, oh, this one was, this person was baptized during the Tokyo Express. Oh, and, okay. And it's it's kind of a shortcut to like, don't contact because he doesn't know he's a member. Right, right. That's wow. Where, where that kind of was. Yeah. So, <clears throat> but that ended up kind of being a blessing in disguise because when we arrived with Preach My Gospel, the messaging was completely opposite. Right. right? It was like, this was horrible. Like, we never should have done this do not be manipulative at all, you know, because like we had been ridiculed so harshly in the media, frankly. Um, and so it was like, no, be very earnest, be very genuine. We don't baptize a lot and that's okay. Hmm. Make sure that you're doing the best you can and like that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. So I, I have to preface that just because that really kind of exemplifies the culture of the mission. Right. Um, that's interesting. So because of that, did you feel like you got to enjoy your mission a little bit more, like have the grand adventure a little bit more rather than just proselytizing all the time? What, what it turned out to be was that I never felt... So I struggled. There were a bunch of things that were on my mission that I, now looking back on, am like very concerned about. But at least I didn't have those problems, if that makes sense, right? Like, at least the the studying, the preparation, the lesson preparations, at least that was all above board and ethical, you know? Right. Um, there were a bunch of kind of weird stuff. You do feel, you feel so out of place. You feel so alien as a missionary, just no matter where you are. Um, I had a great there's a great blessing if you surfing in Japan is that like wearing a suit and a tie is not weird. Mm -hmm. It's not weird for a young adult to be wearing a suit and a tie and even a name badge. Like that's not super weird. Right. It's like, Oh, he represents a company. He's probably a sales rep or something. Right. Right. You know, especially even being a foreigner there, it's just like, Oh, okay. Yeah. People look at you and they, Oh, I know what you are, you know? Yeah. Um, and that was fortunate. The hard part of, 
the mission was just the fact that you don't teach, you just find people. Right. The amount of constant rejection, you know? Yeah. Uh, People tell me that, that, you know, Japan is a hard mission with air quotes, you know, it's a hard, Oh, yo, he was sort of a hard mission, you know, just because it's a very low baptizing mission. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how that's true. I feel like if you have a, nefarious mission president i think your mission is probably a lot harder yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. (laughs) um personally uh because i never felt like my mission president was out to get me either of them (sighs) you know thank heavens yeah um but at the same time you know i had companions that i couldn't communicate with i had companions that struggled deeply with depression you know uh, cause I mean, we'd knock on 400 doors in a night and come back and, you know, have no success at all. I went through two transfers with no one to teach before like that's, and that wasn't a strange thing that just happened, you know? Right. And, uh, and we just had no resources. You know, I had a companion essentially confide in me that like, yeah, he's having suicidal thoughts and you know, what am I? I'm a 20 year old kid, mm-hmm. you know, the only person he can talk to in, who knows how many miles, you know, we're in a branch of 12 people. Yeah. You know, like very, very no support system with an encouragement to just, well, just buckle up and work harder. You know, Mm -hmm. we had very few emotional support. We were in a foreign country. We can only contact home twice a year, you know, on mother's day and Christmas. So you feel tremendously isolated. Um, and yeah, it pretty much, for the missions where you're way out there and you're speaking a foreign language, I think how the quality of your companions is going to determine how good or bad your mental health is. Yeah. Because sometimes like if you can't communicate with your companion and you're having no success, like it's, it's, it can be like life shatteringly bad, frankly, like the, the the likelihood that you're going to get traumatized is high. And I knew missionaries who had abusive companions who had physically abusive companions. Uh, I had one who was, you know, who would stonewall me Mm -hmm. and, you know, put, put blame on me. And I know because the next companion I had later was like, you know, elder, are you okay? Like you're like, you know, I'd, act like a victim of domestic abuse, frankly. Right. You know? And right. he's just like, and, and I ended up having, having to open up. I'm like, you know, I was with his elder and like this and this and this happened. And he's just like, you know, look, that's not okay. You know? And he had to kind of, but, but we had no training for this. Right. No. We're all just like guys just trying to figure it out. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it was for me when I look back on it, like it was the best of times. It was the, Right. It was the worst of times. Yeah. And what did, so overall, what did your mission do for your testimony? Like when you came home, had you further kind of justified things or were you, were you more in, like, where were you at by the end of your mission? You know, you do this thing where you have very kind of like selective memory of your mission. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's hard to, it's hard to explain I think if you've been there and I think if you've experienced it and you start thinking about it methodically, you'll come to the conclusion that like, there's a bunch of things I just don't remember Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Right. Recently I've reconnected with kind of a companion that I served with and 
we had the rebellious act of uh, buying a contemporary CD and listening to it in our apartment. Um, oh, how, and I remember feeling so guilty for this, but yeah. at the same time, like I love music and so did he. And just like, I don't feel bad. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, okay, yeah, we can do this. So I bought um, some Japanese music and we listened to it in our CD player and, um, and just like, man, the amount of crippling guilt that you can feel over absolutely anything and everything is it's hard to describe. Um, and it, and it looking back on it, like, it seems so absurd, but like, you know, I got, I had, I got, I personally got face cards banned in my mission. <laughs> really? Yeah. This is a good story. So, uh, in Japan, y- you don't talk to people on trains. Right. Like that is like, just like, just like a social rule. Like trains are quiet time. You don't initiate conversations. Yeah. You don't know, but you're expected to talk with everyone all the time right so you're kind of in a double bind here right like you're 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 damned if you do you're damned if you don't right so what i did in order to make the situation more palpable for myself less socially awkward because i was always aware of how awkward i was um i had a deck of cards and i knew a couple magic tricks so on the train i'd be like hey pick a card you know right Right, As, as a conversation opener or whatever right and I was the district leader at that time. And uh, I was on splits with a missionary who would later become AP. So, haha. Um, and I showed him just kind of like this way of contacting. And I'm like, look, this isn't a foolproof method. This is just how I personally talk to people that I would feel way too awkward approaching right. normally. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I taught him a few tricks. And then later at zone conference in the chapel, after the zone conference ends, he's like, hey, reteach me that trick that you taught me. And I'm like, oh, okay. And so I was like showing him the trick or whatever because I brought my cards because we were on the train all the way to the zone leader. Right. Zone, you know, the zone meeting. And and so he's like, oh, okay, ba 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 ba. Well, the mission president sees me with a deck of cards playing stuff. And there had been a general authority 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. That had came out with a talk that, about the dangers of playing cards. Yeah. You know, idleness promotes gambling, whatever. And so I got a phone call from my zone leader who was like, do you have de- a, a deck of cards? Do, do you have a deck of cards at the zone meeting? And I'm like, well, yeah, I was doing this and this. He's like, yeah, mission president was, was kind of upset. He's like, I think, I think there's going to be a mission wide ban on playing cards. Cause really? some missionaries would play, play poker or whatever, you know, right, um, right. in the evenings, like drinking P day or whatever. And so, yeah, the next zone, the next mission, meeting or whatever was yeah if you have face cards either put them send them to the mission home and you can take them home with you or throw them out but yeah wow um well congrats i was also i know that was that was a source of pride i was never district leader ever again so (laughs) that had that happen and then and then later i was a big fan of p-day eve okay yeah which is a uh which is a ritual that you play board games, you know, the night before P-Day. Yeah. Because P-Day, <laughs> let me tell you, Elder, uh, you can't sleep in. Sleeping in is horrible, right? But you can take naps during P-Day. Yeah. So who's to say you can't wake up at 6.30 and, you know, say your prayers and kind of do that routine and then just immediately take a nap? Right. Right? So the night before, you know, especially if you have like a, if you're in like a format apartment, 
oh yeah, board games would come out. And I had personally purchased Catan. Really? <laughs> I was carrying it around with me. And then when I left, I had, I trained right before I left. So I handed it off to uh, the kid I trained. And then very quickly, I've heard that, yeah, board games were, were banned the whole mission. Wow. Because some missionaries complained. There was a, there's kind of a culture. I don't know if anyone's talked with you about this before, but there's kind of a gossip culture in missions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've, it's uh, very rich. I've, I've been personally involved in both the gossiping and being the gossip of a mission. So, yes, I'm familiar. So, I've heard, so when I was trained, I heard a few colorful stories about, certain missionaries using gossip as a means to like climb the ladder, so to speak. Right. Which I was disgusted by at several levels. Right. Cause I took, you know, as much as I wanted to have fun, I took my mission very seriously mm-hmm. and I took, you know, a lot of this. And for me, the biggest thing was like, you know, look, playing games and like having fun is one thing, but if you're, if you're trying to advance yourself at the expense of other missionaries, mm-hmm. I'm like, how perverted is that? Right. Like that, yeah. if anything is taking the Lord's name in vain, it's that, right? Yeah. So I vowed very early, like I will never say anything bad about any companion under any circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> that was like, that was like a mantra that I had. Right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it was so like people, missionaries would complain sometimes that like, oh, you know, man, you know, we're playing board games and like, I just can't feel the spirit so strongly, you know, as strongly when I'm doing other stuff. And yeah. I just, I hated that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also had, I also had an opportunity of having a Polynesian elder in one of my, one of my areas and who was just fantastic. Um, and he was a very effective teacher, very warm guy, very authentic guy, uh, and who had a blatant disregard for most rules. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like he'd wake up whenever he wanted, he'd work out for wait. He'd never left his apartment on time, but he was a very ex- effective, he was very effective at finding people, a very effective at teaching people because he genuinely believed in what he was doing. And he was very good at authentically connecting with people. Right. Right. And he'd be on the phone with um, people he taught from other areas, like all the time, which was technically against mission rules. Oh, yeah. Super. But and I, and I and I would talk to him about it. And he's just like, I'm friends with these people. You can't tell me I can't get on the phone mm-hmm. and like talk to this guy. Like he's having a hard time. He doesn't like the missionaries in the area now. Like what? Like, what do you expect me to do? You know? And so I also had, and that resonated with me really hard, you know, it's just like, well, maybe you can't be a perfectly effective missionary. Like, you know, there's just, there's just this really weird pressure, right. To, to be very like unthinkingly obedient. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense to go, I'm sorry, if I'm circling back to the conversation where you say, Hey, did the mission leave you right. Mm -hmm. Feeling better or like what ideas did it form or whatever. I kind of left the mission, I would say, stronger in the church, but also with a very deep understanding that, like, leadership can be completely off the mark sometimes. Right. Rules can rules uncritically adopted can be harmful. Yeah. Right. 
Um, and I witnessed, I would say like abusive interactions on the mission that I would, that I either forgot in, intentionally or unintentionally, or like didn't think too much about, but, uh, but for the most part, like when I left the mission, it was a, a positive, positive feeling looking back, but also with kind of this idea that like, maybe it is the best to lighten up a little bit if you are really earnest about what you're, what you're doing, you know? Yeah. The most, the most important, the most important part is your heart when you're serving is kind of like the big takeaway that I got. Yeah. Uh, could I have learned that without spending two years <laughs> boxed up in a hole, you know, probably. Uh, probably also, also there's a bunch of stuff now that I look back, like there's a bunch of uh, coping mechanisms that I developed maladaptive daydreaming being one of them. Yeah. Um, ride just be on a bike riding someplace. Cause we had, you're given so little money yeah. <laughs> and trans transportation is so expensive. We'd be on bikes for like 20 miles. You know, we're not, we don't have anyone to teach anyway. And I remember just being like, not remembering the trip at all. Right. Just like arrive. Just like, Oh, how did I get here? Type right. stuff, which yeah. is kind of a red flag. Um, if you're a missionary and you're listening to this, like that's not good. Uh, keep a track of when you do that and how often you do that and make sure that you can always, you know, get feel your body where you're at. Yeah. But, you know, I remember I had a lot of like out of body derealization, depersonalization experiences on the mission too, that were kind of euphoric in the moment. But now that I look back on it, I'm like, Ooh, uh. I didn't think they were bad when I got off the mission, mm -hmm. but you know, 10 years, 10 years of, uh, personal experience looking back on it. I'm like, Ooh, yeah. So, okay. So you've been off for a while and, um, what, like, what did you do when you got home? Did you go to a church school? Did you like, get um, yeah, I went, I went pretty, I went pretty straight into depression when I got back. Mm. <laughs> I got back. Um, and part of it's like, you know, I love video games. Like, yeah. Um, and I, I don't just love playing video games. I love thinking about them and analyzing them and talking about it and that kind of stuff. And so in the mission, there's this idea of being trunky, you know, for mm -hmm. all the things that you wish you could do back at home. And I remember getting back and finally being able to play video games and then just being really frustrated that I didn't find the same amount of joy or fulfillment that I did before. You know, I, ha I constantly had this struggle of like, oh, you're wasting time, mm -hmm. you know, when you're doing this. It's like I wasn't allowed, like I wasn't allowed to enjoy myself. Yeah. And it took me a long time in order to finally be able to say to myself, like, hey, it's fine. Like, you've been playing a video game for four hours. That's fine. You yeah. Know? But yeah, eventually I tried to get, I desperately tried to get into Provo as a transfer student. Because I remember I had like two years of college before I went Right. My yeah, that's right. And at the time I tried to get into Provo, it was just really hard to get in, especially mm -hmm. as a transfer student. And so I moved up there uh, with the idea of uh, just doing a semester up there and trying to get in. And that didn't end up working out. So I just kind of like stayed up there working while I tried to like figure out what the heck I wanted to do with my life. Um, I worked for Vivint for a, for a season. Yeah. Which uh, 
I didn't do sales. I was actually did data entry in, in okay. their Provo, head, Provo headquarters. And uh, I will never buy anything from that company. I don't think they're really. Uh, yeah, that's my takeaway. I am. I don't know if that's. I'm allowed to vocalize some of those opinions on here. Oh, but please. I'm sorry if you work for Vivid. <laughs> but uh, I mean, I saw a lot of high pressure sales tactics being used. Right. I was the person that the, the salespeople would call when they're going to complete a sale. Right. And then I would do a survey with the person they're selling to. And I'm sure that some of their salesmen were honest, but I had a lot of really dishonest people calling in. And if you suspected that the person you're interviewing is too elderly or not in the right state of mind to like complete the sale, you have to transfer them to another person or, or deny them, you know? Yeah. And so I had people call, people would try to sell their stuff to people who are not capable of making the payment commitments, like for sure. Right. Yeah. And so I would be like, you know, I can't proceed with the sale and the sales reps would get really angry. Yeah. Um, sometimes they just call in hoping to get a different, uh, a different person doing the survey. Right. So I'd have to like wave, wave a special guy to like flag certain salesmen on the floor. Wow. And it was it, like that also, I started to see some of the same sales tactics that we use in the mission being employed in just like blatantly unethical ways. Yeah. Um, in some of these other sales places. And that was not that left a really sour taste in yeah. my mouth. Oh, for sure. Um, and then the culture in Provo is just such that it's very, it's just very different. Um, again, because I come from a culture where we can, we can criticize anything we want, mm -hmm. right? We could talk about anybody at any time you know, and you just can't there. Like, there's just kind of like a, kind of a repressive, like if you had, you can have negative thoughts, but just don't share them. Kind yeah. of a, kind of a feel. And I really had, I really struggled making any meaningful friends um, there. It was kind of, it was kind of a lonely time. Yeah. Yeah. But then obviously. <laughs> that was my experience in Provo. Yeah. But then, um, so you're married now. Um, I am. So, well, that's because I eventually went to BYU-Idaho. Oh, you so, went to BYU-Idaho. Okay, so you went to yeah, BYU-Idaho. I, I had friends that were like, so I got on my mission. I got off my mission sooner, like mm -hmm. like a full year ahead of some of my other friends. And so once they got off their mission, they're like, hey, we're going up to BYU-Idaho. I still hadn't gotten into BYU Provo. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm like, well, I know BYU-Idaho accepts everybody. So, yeah. you know, I'll just like, yeah, I'll just get my degree. I'll go up there. And BYU-Idaho is a teaching college. And if your if your major is like computer science or um, IT, which is kind of more my focus, um, or if it's one of like it, it's not a bad school, it's a teaching college. You know, you learn practical skills. It's not like a waste of time up there. Yeah. Um, and so I roomed with a bunch of those guys. All of those guys, none of them were from Utah. Um, they were all, it was like the island of misfit toys. Mm -hmm. You know, one of them was a convert. We just lived in a house over there. And that was a lot. That was a lot better. Yeah. Um, even though Rexburg as the city is like crazy. Yep. <laughs> you know, like, man, that, that ah, I have, and um, Heavenly Mother has probably the worst stories of, of Rexburg. Yeah. Than yeah. like almost everybody I know. Part of it's because like, she's like a flame to everyone who's, 
who's just like has has that kind of trauma you know she's yeah. a very like supportive accepting person yeah and when you're a very supportive accepting person you just have people tell you stuff you know yeah. um my experience was not nearly as as riveting um or as heartbreaking as hers but there's just a lot of times where like i just be in places where it's just like Ugh, gonna give you the heebie-jeebies there's a lot of like very literalistic um ideas and concepts that, oh yeah we we've you know, we've we've had bubble. a few episodes where we cover some byu idaho crazy stories you know um dumb yeah. things said by professors or fellow students yeah so my i don't know how I don't know how much I want to talk about my my beautiful, loving wife just because she's not here, you know? Right, right. Um, and, you know, her thoughts are her own. Her experience is her, is her own, yeah. you know? So I don't want to, like, you know, allude to that. But I will say that there are pockets of BYU-Idaho that are significantly safer and healthier than a lot of others. Yeah. Um, and one of them, one of them, I'll flat out say, is the theater department. Yeah. Um, the professors there when I was there were very more like a lot more accepting, yeah. a lot more aware of mm -hmm. general social issues, a lot more self-aware of how crazy some of the, some of the Mormon leadership has mm -hmm. been in the past. Um, if you're part of like, if you find yourself realizing that you're LGBTQ, like the theater department might be a safer place yeah right i don't know how i don't know how safe it is now so like don't don't please don't take my words as like oh now them, i can because i graduated there. like five years ago yeah. yeah but but i would say that like way better than than the religion department for example right? yeah oh 100 um and so <clears throat> and so i'm aware that even within byu idaho different people can have varying experiences depending on what department you are what major you're at what apartment complex you're in and like there's always like kind of a bishop roulette no matter where you are mm -hmm. but i feel like in rexburg it is the most huge like yeah. at one end of the spectrum you could have a very liberal bishop who's a pr very like liberal professor and then at the other end of the spectrum you can have someone who really believe that uh the seed of cain thing is literal still yeah. you know like it's just like it, it all exists at the same place there yeah um and so if you're in a bad space like please move <laughs> like yeah Try something. Just roll, roll the cylinder on that revolver one, a few more times. You know, like yeah. if you need to survive there. Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, yeah, and and I will say there there are there are supports at BYU Idaho. You just got to find the right people. You got to pay attention because you'll hear things that kind of go this, huh? Okay, maybe that's a safe a safe person. Um, and yeah, I, I, th I think you can find those people if you have to be there, but if you don't have to be there, honestly, get out. Like it's not, it's not worth it. If you ask yeah. me. And you have to be aware of, and it's hard, you know, because I feel like when I was there, you don't really pay attention to how safe you're feeling very often mm -hmm. because you're so caught up with a bunch of other stuff, especially religiously. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if I, 
if any listeners are still there, you know, and you're listening to this podcast, which means that you're probably having a hard time to some extent, please pay attention to how safe you feel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, like, and you know, you don't have to, you don't have to participate, you know, f- look for a space where you're safe. Um, and you know, yeah. Take care of yourself. Yeah. So talking then like leading, leading towards you, being out now because obviously you wouldn't be on the podcast mm-hmm. if, uh, if if you were still all all gung ho about it. Like at at what point did you start to say like, hmm, yeah, you know what? Actually, uh, no thanks. So this is a perfect lead in. So when I was in BYU Idaho, I worked for the school, mm-hmm. um, and one of my coworkers. Uh, who I got along pretty well. He was he was my same major, so we clicked. Uh, we both accepted a job from the same place. We both graduated about the same time. We both accepted a job, and that was down in Texas. And so he moved down there first. I stuck around up at BYU Idaho while my wife graduated, and then I moved down. So before I could move into our apartment. I started work. So there was kind of a discrepancy, you know, where like I have to report to work before I can move into my apartment kind mm-hmm. of a situation. And so I reached out to him because uh, we were we were like not the best of friends, but like, man, I clicked with the dude. He was he's just like a great stand up guy. And he's just like, hey, why don't you just crash on my couch for like, you know, a couple weeks before you can move in your apartment? It's like, it's no problem at all. You don't even need to pay me anything like you're a chill guy. Like we'll just hang out or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, thank you so much. Right. And so we went down and it worked out exactly like that. Right. Um, And this was 2015 when I graduated school Mm -hmm. at the same time, my wife is now pregnant with our first, with our firstborn. Uh, And so I moved down there. She came down and joined me once our apartment opened up. Um, and we had our kid and our child was born November of 2015, the same month of the infamous November policy. Yeah. The, the friend that had been so generous and so selfless in helping me move down there was gay. Yeah. So all at once, Okay, I'm starting my family. I'm holding my newborn daughter, who is perfect, in my arms, mm-hmm. trying to reconcile this policy, which is very discriminatory. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I had some conversations with this friend, too, which my memory of is very fuzzy because we've had a lot of conversations over like a long period of time. So it's hard to remember like which conversations were when and where and that kind of stuff. But I do remember holding my daughter and looking at her and imagining a scenario in which due to factors, natural factors beyond her control, making a list, a pro and con list about how much it's worth continuing to live. Yeah. And I came very quickly to the conclusion that if my daughter were to tell me that she was gay, I would remove her from the church. Right. 
because it's not safe. Yeah. And I came to that conclusion emotionally, intuitively, reflexively, right? Mm -hmm. And as soon as I did, right, there's just this huge pit and a hole in my stomach because that goes completely against everything, right? I've this this institution that I have also based my life on, mm -hmm. right? That I have a whole trajectory for. And that, like that internal conflict, like that dissonance, I think was really what catapulted my my journey that eventually led me out. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I feel like that happens to a lot of people when they they have a kid and they look at them and they say do i like do i really want to raise them in this and and if i if I, i'm going to how am i how am i going to do that and how to make sure they're healthy you know what i the conclusion i came up to was that you know like for my friend for so many other people it's not a it's not a maybe thing your sexuality is not a is not a something that maybe you guess at, mm -hmm. right? Like it's something you know, you know pretty, <laughs> you know pretty sure, right? Yeah. Like it's not up in the air, right? And so I just remember thinking about because again I go back to this idea that I mentioned earlier. God has to be all loving, and all knowing and all understanding, mm -hmm. right? So how could in all knowing and all understanding God put someone in such an impossibly cruel situation hmm. because we don't, no one can know if the church is true. Yeah. Like a hundred percent. No one can know the church is true with the same surety that they know their own sexuality. Right. Right. And so, and so for me who is married to as a man married to a woman, there is no cost, right? There is no, there's nothing I'm sacrificing. Mm -hmm. There is nothing I'm giving up by participating fully in the church. But if you're, if you're gay, that, how, how impossible is that? You get to choose between something that you know with a surety to something that at best you can kind of like really hope for. Mm -hmm. And you're required to give up like everything that the church tells you will make you happy and fulfilled. Yeah. And like the, the injustice of that was so incompatible with the loving and just God yeah. that I had, that I had, had believed that yeah. like, I like something has to give something has to give. Yeah. Um, and and I also, at the same time, I had come to another conclusion about the nature of God, which is, oh, maybe there is a possibility that God is not all loving. He's selectively loving hmm. or not all just. He's selectively just. And if that's the case, he doesn't deserve my worship. Right. Right. Um, I, I, it just doesn't, he doesn't deserve it from me. I'll put it elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, and so from there, my feeling was, well, I got to, there's a lot I don't understand, mm -hmm. right? Time to, time to research and understand it. Yeah. 
big mistake. Um, well, I mean, it, what ultimately it wasn't my mistake. No. My mistake, dear dear listeners, and I will tell you my mistake, listeners. My mistake was that I did not tell my wife <laughs> about how I was feeling or about the rabbit hole that I was about to rabbit hole of research that I was about to delve into. If I could, if I could go back and change almost pretty much like one thing about my life up until this point was that I would have involved her in the beginning. Yeah. Um, because that would have saved me a tremendous amount of, um, heartache and misunderstanding and like a bunch of stuff later, but yeah. Yeah. So communication, I guess that's the, yeah. That's communication the, is big. Yeah. And, and I, I was definitely operating from kind of an arrogant sense of like, well, you know, she just had a baby and, you know, she's struggling <laughs> so much already with her other stuff. And like, yeah. well, you know, maybe this, maybe, maybe it'll be all for naught because I'll just find something that'll make everything make sense. And, you know, uh, right, right. Don't want to bother her with it because I don't want to bother. Why would I, why would I want to cause her unneeded stress and suffering of the, you know, yeah. uh, it's, it's arrogance. It's, I recognize that as a little bit of arrogance now, but. Yeah. I mean, you know, we do the best we can. I was younger too, so. Yep. Yeah. And so so then you you go down this rabbit hole and like at at what point did you decide like, yeah, okay, the church isn't true. Like it's not what it claims to be and and I can't so, do this anymore. You know, it was a gradual slide for me, honestly. Mhm. Um because I, I had listened to, I had started listening to podcasts. I listened to a lot of church historians. You know, I bought Rough Stone Rolling, which is where I read. Um, and I started to come to a few different conclusions, kind of like very slowly. I remember my first one was, uh, was talking to my wife. And I'm like, so <clears throat> I want to say a few things real quick about mental health and mental health awareness because I was completely unaware of these things uh, when I started. But now, um, after having gone through therapy a bit <laughs> and done some more reading and studying, um, I was struggling with uh, what's called religious trauma syndrome, hmm. which is it manifests itself a little bit like complex PTSD, uh, where you feel that your safety, as in like belonging to an in-group, is directly linked to your involvement in a community, right? Right. And so anything, anything that might disconnect you from that community is met, not intellectually, but like emotionally within your body, like an existential threat, right? right? So I remember I had come to the intellectual conclusion first that the Book of Mormon cannot be historical, right? Yeah for a bunch, a bunch of different reasons that we can, that are discussed everywhere else. Right. Yeah. But in telling my wife, I could not think about telling her without immediately shaking. Right. Right. Because there is a deep, deep fear, which again, does not have to be rational that like, I'm going to be alone. Right. That she'll leave or whatever, whatever will happen. Right. Yeah. I, I couldn't even understand why I was feeling the way I was feeling. But every time I would try to talk about it, like I would have essentially like a panic attack or like, you know, um, I go into like fight or flight mode. Mm -hmm. Right. And what happens when you go into fight or flight mode, 
especially for me, I disassociate. Yeah. So I stop feeling my emotions just entirely. And I go to a purely intellectual place, right? So when I would try to communicate things like, hey, I don't believe that the Book of Mormon is historical and this is why, I'm not speaking from an emotional place mm -hmm. because I can't, because my system is overloaded and I've disconnected. And if you're a member of the church and you believe earnestly, the least helpful thing <laughs> that can ever happen is your spouse coming from this high and mighty, purely intellectual place mm -hmm. telling you systematically why what you believe is wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Like not helpful, right? It's yeah. not good. And so I was really caught between this rock and this hard place where like I desperately need to communicate this stuff, but I had no tools, no ability to actually do that without like completely disconnecting from my emotions, which is the opposite of what I want to do, right? Yeah. So that created a lot of turmoil, but my steps were, you know, like the Book of Mormon being non-historical was really big. And for me, I was like, well, maybe I can still make this work. Maybe I can believe that like Bushman, right? Mm -hmm. That the church isn't true, but it's good. Right. Maybe I can, right. maybe I can do like what he does, right? Yeah. Um, and I remember one of the big things that I, and I was still reading Rough Stone Rolling at this point. One of the big things that I got from Rough Stone Rolling was the character of Joseph Smith portrayed in a way that I had never seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember when he describes the, the, the March of like Zion's camp, you yeah. know, I'm like, oh, Joseph Smith is a narcissist. Yeah. Like the way he pits people against each other, the way that he doesn't take responsibility for any wrongdoing that he does, the way he immediately deflects blame. It's like, oh, oh, like this isn't good leadership at all. This yeah. is like a narcissist kind of tries to rule. And, you know, and Bushman is pretty generous towards Joseph Smith. I felt, you know, he doesn't get into the polygamy stuff like at all. Yeah. Um, and so then it was then later, right. I would go back like, well, maybe I can understand. So then of course you read no man knows my history, which says the same facts, right. But from yeah. kind of a different perspective. Yeah. And then another big fundamental thing is I realized quickly that like, you know, I know a lot about early Mormon history and we have a lot written of that. I don't know anything about Brigham Young taking over, mm -hmm. about the early saints. That's like a huge hole in a lot of people's church history knowledge, right? Yeah. And, and there's a bunch of books um, called the, uh, what is it? The Mormon Hierarchy, Origins of Power okay. by, uh, by uh, what's his name? He wrote uh, Mormons of the Magical Worldview too. Oh, okay. Quinn, right? Yeah. Quinn. And that, like those books, uh, The Origins of Power specifically, very much cover like how Brigham Young was able to, and, and, and Quinn wrote this as a believing member, which is fascinating to me. But like it very much chronicles like how Brigham Young was able to like take control of the church, mm -hmm. um, away from like Rigdon and some of those other elements, how they were able to move to Utah, how he established himself there. The fact that he didn't call himself prophet for years and years and years and years. Um, 
you know, because Joseph Smith was the only prophet. And then suddenly that changed. Right. Then I, then I started being aware of how much the narrative has shifted over the years. Right. Um, and so a lot of it, a lot of it's like a lot of the knowledge that I have. I'll rephrase this. I have a problem <laughs> in that when I, I will be possessed by like an urge to just like delve into research. Right. Yeah. It's a coping mechanism for sure. Right. Um, it's, it is a, uh, insatiable appetite for knowledge. I think a lot of us go through this kind of period where we're obsessed about learning stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and what emerged to me as I studied the history was a pattern of changing narratives um, and deception, frankly, in order to keep the best, to preserve the best narrative. Right. Um, and it was when, it was when I kind of like came to that conclusion that like, yeah, anything that's taught today was not taught previously mm -hmm. and no one knows it. Um, I started realizing that like, you know, the, the organization and the history has not been honest with itself. Like ever, like, yeah. ev like never, never it's been honest. No. Um, and, and then at the same time I started studying because also like I'm deconstructing religion and like broader sense, like what does this mean uh, in terms of my belief in Christianity? And I start learning about epistemology and yeah. like all this other stuff. And I, eventually I come to two conclusions that I've, I'm able to kind of consolidate everything into one is that, and, and I want to, I want to differentiate real quickly. I separate the church. When people say the church, mm -hmm. I separate it into two groups. You have the community of people, mm -hmm. right? Pretty much stake presidents down, right? Who just go to church. They just want to draw closer to Christ. They want to enrich their lives. They want to live it right. Mm -hmm. Um, the community. And then you have the institutions. Mm -hmm. The institution of the church is anyone who writes the manuals. Yeah. Anyone who edits the manuals, anyone who's in charge of like doctrine, we've redefined the word doctrine, like within the church a lot, but like policies, history, whatever in the manual is controlled by the institution. The institution is dishonest. Yeah. And has, and has never been completely honest with its own membership. Okay. That's conclusion number one. And then conclusion number two is that the main epistemology in the, in Mormonism and kind of Christianity in general, which is that you should pray about something and have a feeling and use that feeling to determine what's true or not is not a, ultimately reliable source of arriving at what's true and can be manipulated by malicious actors. Yeah. So eventually I'm at, I've, I've reached those two conclusions and that's when kind of like, I realized that, ah, I'm, I'm out. Yeah. And so if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally makes sense. <laughs> this, this being the XX Mormon podcast um, I'm curious then how, um, how, how you've been moving on. Like what, what is different? What is different about your life? How are you finding your life outside yeah. of that now? 
you know, I that part was has actually been the hardest for me because I was a PMO for a long time. Yeah. Uh, just because just because my wife hasn't been on the same page, right? Yeah. Um, and she's not on the same. Again, I will not speak to her or her. Yeah. She's all on of her, her own thoughts journey. and opinions are her on her own, yeah. right? Um, and it's her own journey, and it's very different from mine, mm-hmm. right? And I want to support her in as many ways as I possibly can. And up to this point, or up to about a year or so ago, a lot of that has meant that I still that I still went to church, mm-hmm. and I would still hold callings um, until about a year ago. I was at a meeting where people were talking about the CES letter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I bring this up because I think this is kind of important for listeners, although there is a little bit of a trigger warning. And in this meeting, there was a, you know, it's kind of like, you know, CES letter points and they would kind of knock down some straw men and whatever, but then they opened it up to like a QA session. And there was a real big hostility um, that was felt in that room by members who felt existentially threatened, right, by the CES letter. And so they were very angry and they were expressing that anger. Which I don't hold them necessarily accountable for. Mm-hmm. But I felt terrified. Yeah. And it wasn't a logical feeling of terror. It was a real deep seated feeling of terror. And I started probably for the first time to get thoughts of death, right? Mm-hmm. Um a bit of like suicide ideation type stuff. And at that point I realized that this is not like, I can't, I can't keep going to church. Like this is not, this isn't good for me. Like it's not good for my health, my overall health. Yeah. You know? And so that's when, you know, I had a discussion with my wife and I basically said like, I can't do this anymore. Like it's not going to be, it's not going to be productive and helpful for me, mm-hmm. which she's graciously understood. And so my, my feeling is that please listen and pay attention to how you're, how you're feeling. Mm-hmm. And if you feel unsafe, you, that's not good. It's not good to stay in a place where you feel unsafe. So my space now has been one of like, you know, I've stepped away now for about a year and a few months. Um, I kind of limit the amount of news about the church that I process Mm -hmm. um, because I'm very prone even now to being like obsessively researchy. It's called rumination is really what it's called. Yeah. Right. Um, I will tend to ruminate and I'll ruminate on uh, imaginary conversations that never happen. You know, I'll ruminate on all of the sorts of harm that a specific doctrine could potentially cause Mm -hmm. like, and like, so I tend to avoid activities and situations that I know will cause me to like ruminate for a long time. Um, and instead, I try to uh, replace those with kind of more helpful and activities that bring meaning to me. Yeah. Whether it's writing or reading or, uh, or whatever, philosophy in general. There's so much that I can spend my resources on history that has nothing to do with the church, like a bunch of other things that give a lot of joy, you know? Um, And also, you know, I I, like, I'm in therapy. Yeah. (laughs) Because what I've realized is that like, I've disassociated for so long. 
I've been out of touch with how I feel for so long mm -hmm. because for the longest time I've been internally conflicted, right? Because I haven't believed in the church and yet I attend, right? I don't, I don't believe in the church, but I, but I read the flipping general conference, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and ruminate about it, right? And that causes me pretty quickly to disconnect from my emotions, from my, from my body and just go to a purely intellectual space. Right. And so as an ex, as, as, as on the journey to becoming an ex ex Mormon, mm -hmm. what that journey has meant to me has been reconnecting with my body and reconnecting with my emotions, which honestly I haven't really felt as fully as I realized. Right. Uh, there's a concept of feeling angry <laughs> that I don't think I've really let myself experience like my whole membership of the church, even since I was a kid, you know, there's certain emotions that you're not supposed to feel. That's, that's bullshit. Actually, you're it's perfectly great to feel angry as long as you don't act out destructively, mm -hmm. you know? And so if you're feeling angry, if you're feeling sad, if you're feeling a feeling, uh, it's been kind of a personal journey of discovery for me where it's like, well, what can I do in this feeling? What does mm -hmm. this feeling make me want to do? Maybe I want to run when I'm angry. Maybe I want to write a letter that I'll never send when I'm angry. Mm -hmm. Poetry is really interesting when you're like way pissed and you're yeah. like, how can I channel this into a thing? The idea of feeling an emotion and then like using it to like do something wholeheartedly never never occurred to me until now and so i mean i'm 30 i'm like in my mid 30s so i feel like i'm a little bit late to the party but at the same time like it's actually kind of been exciting and refreshing to like with my whole being not without without some kind of dissonance mm -hmm. to just kind of like throw myself into something if that makes sense yeah yeah it absolutely does yeah I I think that's great. I know um, for me, after leaving, there's this huge journey of self-discovery of, you know, figuring out like, why do I feel this? How, you know, what is this emotion? And, you know, how do I feel about different things? What's good and what's bad and what, you know, all, all of those things. Um, and it, it sounds like you're quite enjoying your journey um, and, and learning a lot. Are there any final parting thoughts you'd like to share with our congregation? Um, you know, finding community is really hard. That's kind of that's kind of what I've noticed, and I don't know if there's an easy way to solve that. I just think it probably is just kind of like outside of outside of the church, just kind of like a random observation that I've had. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, don't but don't beat yourself up about it. Yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah. extending compassion to yourself and just realizing, you know, maybe I need a day to just kind of, to just kind of chillax, you know, like mm -hmm. letting go of a lot of this kind of like constant criticism and self-editing and whatnot has, has been probably the kind of like the hardest thing, but also like the most rewarding, you know, and it, you know, like even like the, the ex-Mormon subreddit or other ex-Mormon communities, like you know, if you have, if you're, if you're feeling, if it, if it makes you feel too angry, like don't, don't feel bad, just disconnecting and taking a break, taking a vacation, mm -hmm. a mental vacation, doing whatever you want. 
And also like the feelings that you're having as you're processing this stuff are completely your own. Mm -hmm. No one can tell you how to feel. No one can control how you're feeling. No one's in charge of any of that, mm -hmm. you know, uh, just let yourself, let yourself be yeah. and don't feel bad about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Um, and, uh, I appreciate you coming on the show and, and sharing your, your story with us. Uh, Methuselah, the, the brother-in-law of the husband of the sister of the wife of the brother of Jared, uh, the, I love the, that so much. <laughs> and, and and the brother of Heavenly Mother and Mary Magdalene. Um, it, it was great having you on the show. Um, may your may your titles live long, and uh, may you prosper. Yeah. Um, as long as my beard. As long as as long as your beard. You should see this guy's beard. It's like seven feet long, um, white yeah. and flowing. Only only Methuselah could get old enough to grow a beard that long. You have to you have to tie. There's a few different techniques to tying it up, you know, yeah. to make sure it doesn't. I can it's, use the bathroom correctly and that kind of stuff. Right. But you know. is is that a braid in there too? Like, did you braid part of it, part of your beard? That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you gotta you gotta keep it fresh, you know. Try new styles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's exactly. Beard competitions. I've yeah. never entered, but I've I'm an admirer. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, I feel like you'd get disqualified because it's so good. So. I, I, I well, thank you. Yeah, I honestly very, very impressed. Um, but of course, brothers and sisters, we, we say these things in the name of a God who is all knowing, all loving, and all understanding. Amen. <laughs>